0: This week's podcast recommendation is Island Crime Season 1, Where is Lisa? This podcast investigates the disappearance of Lisa Marie Young, a 21-year-old Indigenous woman who went missing after leaving a house party on Vancouver Island. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for a promo, and subscribe to Where is Lisa in your favorite podcast app. Today's episode does deal with sexual assault. As always, I will not be graphic about it, but listener discretion is advised. In 1984, 12-year-old Sharon Bald Eagle disappeared. Unlike most long-term missing children's cases, we know who kidnapped her. And when the man gave a convoluted story about what exactly happened, he opened up a search area from Texas to Wyoming and everywhere in between. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the third Thursday series. Every third Thursday of the month, I cover another missing or Murdered Indigenous Persons Case. This month's case is going to take us on a journey because I started with the missing persons case, but this grew because the culprit in this case is a suspect in a number of other cases. But the story starts with the kidnapping of Sharon Bald Eagle and her friend, so that's where we are going to start. Sharon grew up in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. This is the tribal headquarters of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and is located on the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation. Though the tribal name and the reservation name both have the word Cheyenne in them, they are not Cheyenne. It's named for the Cheyenne River, which runs south of the reservation. Sharon is Lakota, though I don't know which tribal band. That information isn't out there. So the way this works is that Sioux is what you could think of as an umbrella term for tribes that speak the language. Then we divide this into three tribes based on the dialect of Sioux they speak, the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota. So basically, everyone who is Lakota is also Sioux, but not everyone who is Sioux is Lakota. The Lakota then have seven tribal bands, four of which are part of the Cheyenne River Indian Reservation, but like I said, I can't find that information specifically on Sharon. Sharon was the oldest of four children and the only girl. Her father, Taylor Bald Eagle, said she was a daddy's girl, she really helped out with the younger boys, which Taylor was grateful for because he was a single father. In the book Justice for Jack, there was a small blurb on Sharon, and it said that she lost her mother, Laura, in the early 1980s, but I don't have much more information than that. So Taylor was raising four kids ages 12 and under by himself, so I'm sure it was a huge help as Sharon learned how to cook and how to help out with child care because he was working to support the family on his own. Sharon was a lively child. She loved music. She really loved playing the piano. She also liked to dance in powwows and loved any sort of art project she could find. At one point, Sharon went to school out in Idaho to a boarding school. But for the 1984 school year, 12 year old Sharon Baldigo was enrolled for the first time at the Brainerd Indian Training School. It was located in Hot Springs, South Dakota, which was much closer to her home than Idaho, but it was still about three and a half, four hours away. I know sometimes we think of residential and mission schools as something they did back in the 1950s and 60s, but there are still operational boarding schools for Native American youth in the United States today. There are currently four off-reservation schools run by the Bureau of Indian Education. They are in Oklahoma, California, South Dakota, and Oregon. There are three tribe-controlled boarding schools in Oklahoma, South Dakota, and North Dakota. The federally controlled off-reservation schools really came to be what we think of as residential schools starting in the mid to late 1800s, and the goal was assimilation. Federal laws were passed forbidding students from using native language in the schools. The idea was to assimilate the indigenous students to European-slash-American ways and then send them back to their tribes in the hopes they would then teach their families these new ways. This entire plan was rooted in white supremacy. Of course, the tribes would adopt these cultural and religious changes because they were superior And surely the tribes would see that once they had the chance to learn and experience it. In 1892, Captain Richard H. Pratt gave a speech on Native American education that really summed up the philosophy, and it was called Kill the Indian and Save the Man. Indigenous people could not become fully human— unless they were willing to assimilate to 19th century America. And, of course, this continued into the 20th century. When the students were finally returned to their families, they had massive language and cultural barriers on top of the trauma of separation, isolation, and abuse that happened at the schools, So even if these students wanted to help their families assimilate, which I'm not saying they did, but if they did, they didn't have the ability to do so. But we know the impact of the cultural genocide and generational trauma because we've talked about it in relation to Canadian residential schools. We've covered this. It's not hard to see that the same methods would have the same results. But here's something interesting about the U.S. system that you might not know. In the 1920s, so a good 60 years of the federal government trying out this boarding school assimilation model, they decided to check in and see how it was going. The results were pretty bad. After two years of studying the issues, the Miriam Report was released in 1928 and it made some very big recommendations for changes to address the issues. One was to ditch the curriculum that only taught American cultural values and replace it with an education that adapted to tribal communities and American society. Another recommendation was to stop sending little kids to boarding school, educate young children closer to home, and only send the older kids to non-reservation schools for high school-level work. And if we remember this in the context of the 1920s, boarding school for high school was seen as a favorable choice for everybody. But why would we do something based on research when we can just let our biases and prejudices rule? So in spite of the findings and the recommendations, boarding school attendance only increased. And no major changes to the curriculum were made. We have to wait another 50 years for any sort of major change In 1975, the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act was passed, and then the goal of assimilation was finally dropped, officially speaking. But the boarding school model didn't live only within government-run schools. Churches, missionaries, and religious organizations also ran schools, often with funding from the government. Their primary goal was conversion to Christianity. Most then took it for granted that the conversion would then lead to assimilation. The Brainerd Indian Training School, where Sharon was newly enrolled in 1984, was run by a church, the Wesleyan Methodist Church. This church formed in the 1840s, splitting from the Methodist church over the issue of slavery because Wesleyan Methodists were staunch abolitionists. I want to thank Laura from the Fall Line podcast for using her research brilliance to find information on the school. It was a small school, so there's just not a lot out there. The school started in 1946 with just seven students. Its first president was Charles Pamp, who was a Potawatomi minister, which already sets the school apart a bit. It's not a reservation school, yet it was initially led by an indigenous president. That definitely got my attention, but I also believe he was the only indigenous president the stated goal of the school was to produce trained workers who would also be able to more effectively evangelize their own people. So, the school doesn't stand out entirely. The goal was still to convert. I did find two people online who wrote about attending the school. I was unable to reach one, and the other is deceased, so obviously I couldn't reach him either. But from their limited writings about the school, it just sounds like a run-of-the-mill religious school. But it doesn't seem like Sharon felt too favorable about the school because she ran away from it on September 8th, 1984, just weeks after the school year started. Sharon had never run away before. She left with a 15-year-old friend who we will call Sandy. That's the name she is most often assigned in the media. Due to her age and what happens next, her identity has been understandably shielded. Sharon wanted to go to Idaho, likely to reconnect with an old classmate from when she went to school out there. That makes me wonder if Brainard wasn't so much the problem, she just wanted to be with her friend. Sandy and Sharon managed to hitchhike to Casper, Wyoming, which is a three-hour trip by car. Once in Casper, they found another person to give them a ride, 49-year-old Royal Russell Long. Long offered to buy the girls some food and let them come back to his house to clean up. They accepted his offer, first stopping at the grocery store before heading to his house. Long promised that after they ate and whenever they were ready to leave, he would drive them to a truck stop on the other side of Casper where they could hopefully find someone heading west to Idaho. Back at his house in Evansville, which is just outside of Casper, Long propositioned the girls. He offered them $100 to have sex with him. Sandy and Sharon refused. Long then pulled a gun on the girls and bound them using wire from coat hangers and tape. He physically assaulted Sharon and then he raped Sandy. Leaving the girls bound, Long fell asleep. Sandy managed to free herself, and she ran, partially clothed, to the neighbor's house to beg for help. They called the police, and then Sandy heard Long's pickup truck take off. When the police got there, Long was gone, and he had taken Sharon with him. This is 1984, so we are over a decade away from the Amber Alert system, and cases like Sharon's are why we have it. The police had the name and description of the kidnapper, as well as a detailed description of the vehicle. This is the exact scenario where Amber Alerts are used and used with success but there was no system in place to send out a be-on-the-lookout-type message to the public. So the manhunt for Royal Long began, but it was mostly the police looking for him. When Taylor Bald learned that his daughter had been kidnapped, he went to Casper, which is six hours from his home, and he made public pleas for Sharon's release on the local media. Long did not come forward, but the FBI managed to track him down to Albuquerque, New Mexico, about a week after the kidnapping. When he was found, Long did not have Sharon with him, but he did have a story he wanted the police to buy. Before we get to Long's story, let's get a little background information on him. Royal Russell Long was born in California, where he grew up, by his own accounting, rather wild. He didn't settle down much as an adult either, having married and divorced six times. He sometimes worked as a truck driver, and other times he was a carnival worker. At the time he abducted the girls, he was a co-owner of a go-kart business in Casper. There are also accusations of sexual abuse and rape in his past, including the molestation of one of his daughters, though I cannot find a record of a conviction. This was, of course, before things were digitized, and that really limits my search abilities. Long's account of what happened the day he picked up the girls was quite different than Sandy's version of events. It more or less started the same. He admitted he picked up the girls and they were looking for a ride to Idaho. He said he offered them food and a chance to shower and clean up at his house first, but Long says the girls told him that they were 18 and 19, not 12 and 15. Long then characterized this as a normal encounter for a truck driver like himself. They would pick up hitchhikers, offer them food and a place to take a shower, and the expectation was that there would be sexual favors in exchange. Long said when they were all back at the house and had eaten, he did proposition Sandy for sex for $25 on top of the food he bought and the use of his shower. He said Sandy was at first indignant at the proposition, saying that she wasn't that kind of girl. But then she changed her mind. Sandy agreed, since they needed the money to get to Idaho. After having, according to Long, consensual sex, Sandy told him that she was actually underage, And that she would claim rape if he didn't give her $200. Angry at this threat, Long said he pulled out a gun on the girls and there was a struggle. In this scuffle, Sharon got a bloody nose, but he did not know how exactly because he denied being the one who hit her. And he definitely denied that he beat her like Sandy claimed. Royal Long went on to say he was worried the accusation would ruin him since he ran a local business frequented by teenagers. So he bound the girls so they couldn't run off while he tried to reason with them. Long said that Sharon was compliant, but Sandy, the one who was threatening to claim rape, was clearly not scared of him. So still afraid Sandy would go to the police, and also he was not feeling well, he decided to lay down and take a nap while leaving the girls bound. When he woke up, he saw that Sharon was still there, but Sandy was gone. Figuring he was about to get caught with a 12-year-old girl who had a bloody nose and was tied up, Long said he carried Sharon to his truck and took off. He took the back roads to Cheyenne, a drive that would have taken over three hours if he avoided the highway. Once in Cheyenne, Long said he found a truck driver who was heading south to Dallas, Texas, and the driver agreed to take Sharon with him. Long said he did not tell the other guy that Sharon was only 12 when he handed her over. Then Long continued on to Denver, Colorado to get a motel and clear his head. He claimed he was heading back to Casper when he learned the cops were looking for him, so he turned back around and headed south again. He knew he would be in big trouble if he showed back up without Sharon so he went to Texas to look for her. Long ended up in Amarillo, Texas, a city any truck driver going from Wyoming to Dallas would almost surely stop at. He asked around to see if anyone had seen someone with a girl matching Sharon's description. His goal was to find her and then bring her back to Wyoming when he turned himself in. After two days in Texas with absolutely no leads, Long left Amarillo and went not east to Dallas to continue his search, but west to Albuquerque. He hadn't found Sharon, and he wanted to stay on the run until she showed back up somewhere. But of course, Long needed money to live off of in the meantime, so he contacted people back in Casper to help him access some resources. Someone he contacted must have turned him in, because he was arrested by the FBI right after he finished using a convenience store payphone one day. This convoluted story of giving a 12-year-old to a total stranger and then driving over 500 miles to look for her was the tale Royal Russell Long would stick to. For what it's worth, the FBI did follow up on this. They used the description of the truck driver and the truck to search for this mystery man who had Sharon, but they never found any matches, There was no evidence Long handed Sharon over. But there also was no evidence at his house or in his truck to say that he killed Sharon either. So murder charges were not brought. Initially, Long was charged with six felony charges, but he negotiated a plea deal. He pleaded out to two counts of kidnapping. And one of aggravated assault. The kidnapping charges got him two life sentences and a concurrently running sentence of six to eight years on the assault charge. Long told the Casper Star Tribune at the time that his lawyer told him he had a good chance of parole in six to 12 years, since Shirley Sharon was going to turn up in that time and prove. He didn't do anything to her, but she didn't turn up, and Taylor started looking for her himself. Not only do we not have an Amber Alert, there really weren't organized groups like we see today to support parents who are looking for their missing children, and we particularly did not have these groups in more rural areas. So Taylor went out on his own between Wyoming and Albuquerque and out to Arizona in the hopes he would find someone who saw Sharon. Someone who saw a truck driver passing through with a 12 year old Lakota girl. Eventually, Taylor couldn't keep traveling out of state. He still had three young boys at home. They had lost their mother, now their sister, and they needed their father. Taylor kept Sharon's story out there by doing interviews whenever the media was willing to hear him. He stayed on the police and the FBI to make sure they were following up with leads. As often happens, particularly in marginalized communities, people didn't necessarily want to go to the authorities with their tips. So they instead gave them right to the family. Taylor fielded a number of letters and phone calls with all manner of quote-unquote tips. Tips he passed on to the FBI, but some of these were really dark and they had to have been hard for Taylor to hear. So one of the agents Taylor worked with over the years essentially told him, don't internalize the information too much because it's probably not valid. And if it is valid, he will hear it from the FBI, not some random person over the phone. The biggest tip that came in about Royal Russell Long in the days, weeks, months after his arrest didn't have to do with Sharon one of Long's ex-wives called the police to say she thought he looked like the sketch of a suspect in another kidnapping. Again, of two friends, but this time in Oklahoma. On September 26, 1981, three years before Sandy and Sharon were kidnapped, Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey went to the state fairgrounds in Oklahoma City together. The girls were both 13 years old, and they had plans to sleep over at Charlotte's house afterwards. While at the fairgrounds, a man approached Cinda, Charlotte, and two teen boys to ask if they could help him unload some stuffed animals from a truck they were for the fair. Charlotte called home to ask if it was okay if she and Cinda stayed later than expected, and her mother said it was fine, but they still had to be back to the house by nine. The man offered the teens $5 an hour each, which was pretty good money in 1981, especially for young teenagers. It was above minimum wage. The four teens got into the man's car, which was a Pontiac Grand Prix, and he drove them to a truck stop to meet the truck they were supposed to unload, but this vehicle wasn't there. So the man gave each of the teen boys $10 and told them to wait there he was going to take Cinda and Charlotte and figure out what was going on with the truck. The Grand Prix drove off, and the teen boys waited as they were told to, and then they kept waiting. The man, Cinda, and Charlotte never came back. The two girls were reported missing. The early investigation pointed towards a man named Donald Corey who worked at the fair. His name badge had been found left behind, and he more or less matched the sketch that they had made with the help of the two teen boys. Corey was arrested and charged, but he was ultimately cleared when his alibi checked out. He did work at the fair, But the day Charlotte and Cinda disappeared, he was in Texas, and he could prove it. There was another man in the area that day who did also match the sketch, and that was Royal Russell Long. It was his brother-in-law who called in this tip. Not only did Long match the sketch, but he was at the fair on the day the girls went missing— Long said he was there because his then-mother-in-law was working, and he was trying to talk her into setting up some sort of savings account for his kids. So Long was actually looked into in relation to Charlotte and Cinda's disappearance pretty early on due to his brother-in-law's tip. But authorities moved on to other leads when this one went nowhere. Fast forward three years after Sharon and Sandy were kidnapped, and here is his ex-wife at the post office in Wyoming. I do not know if she is the same wife connected to the family in Oklahoma or if this was a different ex-wife. While in the post office, she just glanced either at the wanted poster, or maybe it was a missing children's poster, that had the sketch of the man from the fair. She thought he looked just like her ex-husband, and given that her ex-husband had just been arrested and pleaded guilty for a similar crime, she decided to call the local police about her suspicion they then passed the tip on to authorities in Oklahoma. Long's defense attorney said it was really just Long's love of Western wear that got him on the suspect list, because the style of cowboy hat he wore was also the type the man in the sketch wore. But Long also had the same style glasses and facial hair, So I think saying it came down to the cowboy hat is inaccurate. I will put the sketch and Royal Russell Long's picture side by side on social media so you can see for yourself. The Oklahoma authorities did massive searches of anything remotely connected to Long during the time he was in Oklahoma in September 1981. They scoured the hotel room he stayed in. They tracked down the car he rented and searched it with a fine-tooth comb. And the rental car was a Grand Prix, the same make and model the teen boys said the man was driving. The police even dug up and looked into a septic tank from a property long-owned in Oklahoma as well as searching his home in Wyoming. In the trunk of the rental car, they did find some hairs that were consistent with Cinda, and in Long's Wyoming home, they found hairs that they couldn't rule out as belonging to Charlotte. They believed he took her hair home as some kind of trophy. There was also animal fur in Royal Long's truck that matched dogs and a cat that Cinda had frequent contact with. But there was one big issue with all of this evidence. They were taking hairs found in 1984 and saying they were left there in 1981 and no one had vacuumed them up, and no one with similar hair was in the rental car or the truck or the house. As a forensic science, hair analysis, where they look at the strand under the microscope, I'm not talking DNA hair analysis, I'm talking strand comparison, It's not a slam dunk as far as evidence goes. In 1984, right at this time, the FBI formally concluded that hair analysis could not match to a single person. It's not DNA. It's not a fingerprint. It could be considered consistent with someone, or they can say it doesn't exclude that person, but it cannot be a definitive link. Hairs are just not unique enough. And this has been a big problem in the courts, the overstating of hair matches. In 2015, the Justice Department announced that they looked at 268 trials in the U.S. in which hair analysis was used, and they found that in 95% of the cases, the testimony given overstated the accuracy of the finding. I have to repeat that because it's so startling to me. 95% of cases, looking at over 260 of them, the testimony from the experts overstated the accuracy. Around 75 people who were convicted, at least in part due to hair analysis, were later exonerated, sometimes after decades in prison. Unfortunately, in 2017, then U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions decided to nix the DOJ reviews on hair analysis as part of his decision to disband the National Commission on Forensic Science. The goal of the commission was to look at closed cases And evaluate the forensics used, like hair analysis, in the hopes of tightening up standards and accuracy of what is accepted in court. This would, in theory, decrease wrongful convictions. The decision to disband this commission and to stop their work was one that people on all sides of the courtroom were talking prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, They were all critical of it. If we're going to have forensic science used in the courtrooms, we need to know it's accurate. The commission was looking at hair analysis and had over a thousand other cases they wanted to evaluate. That would have given us a much better sized sample, making that information even more useful. But like I said, they were stopped before they finished their work. So why did I get into all of that? It's because this hair evidence was the forensic evidence against Long. So I wanted to give it to you in full context. The 1980s were a great time for experts to be overstating the accuracy of hair analysis. There were also blood stains found in that rental car, but these did not even make the minimum bar for evidence. Even if we fast forwarded a few years and suddenly had DNA technology to use on this blood, it was so degraded and so small that they couldn't even tell if it was animal or human blood. So there would not have been enough for DNA either but the DA took the hair evidence and the circumstantial evidence and charged along with the murders of Cinda and Charlotte in May of 1985. In August, he was sent to Oklahoma to prepare for trial. The state was seeking the death penalty. The initial judge on the case was not convinced at the evidence and dismissed the charges in October. After a preliminary hearing, the state appealed and were able to have the charges reinstated. So even though they got the green light to go ahead to trial, they knew it would be a tough case because they barely got to trial. The state presented what they had, which was more or less what I've already covered, and rested their case. Before the defense began, they moved to have the case thrown out for insufficient evidence. This is not an uncommon motion for the defense to make. It's so common that when I cover trials, I usually don't even include this in my discussion about them. But it is uncommon for the judge to rule in the defense's favor, so the fact that I'm mentioning it should tell you that this went very unexpectedly. The judge, Charles Owen, granted the motion. The trial was over and Long was acquitted. Judge Owen said that if Long was guilty, law enforcement picked him before he was ripe and there just wasn't enough evidence. Because the state presented their entire case and the judge said there wasn't enough to convict, double jeopardy did kick in. Even if Long confessed and led police to the bodies of Cinda and Charlotte, he still could not be tried again here in the U.S. where we have near-absolute double jeopardy laws. With the Oklahoma case resolved, Royal Long was sent back to Wyoming to serve his time for kidnapping Sandy and Sharon. He was only back about nine months before, apparently, he got bored and started writing to the Daily Oklahoman newspaper. He was basically offering, in exchange for money, to reveal to them what happened to Cinda and Charlotte. Of course, the editor of the paper said they were not going to pay any money to a liar and a child molester. Long's defense attorney from Oklahoma said that Long was a psychopath who could lie convincingly. He did not believe Long had anything to do with Cinda and Charlotte's disappearances. This offer for information in exchange for money was just a con. He would have sent them on a wild goose chase. I do agree with his attorney that Long would have sent them on a wild goose chase, but I don't think that because I think Long didn't know where the girls were. Because while Long couldn't be tried again in this case, he was still hoping to get parole in the Wyoming cases. If he confessed to a double murder, it would make it very hard to convince a parole board to let him out. He was also appealing his guilty plea. So there's no incentive here for Long to be honest. His appeal would prove unsuccessful. In the meantime, Taylor Bald Eagle, Sharon's father, kept looking for his daughter and passing along all sightings and tips. They were coming from Wisconsin and Colorado and pretty much everywhere else, but none of them panned out. In the early 1990s, Taylor went to the prison to talk to Royal Long. He wanted to see if he would give him some type of information. But when Long saw that was who came to visit, he turned right around and went back to his cell. He refused to talk to Taylor. Shortly after this attempted visit, Long died in prison in 1993, taking whatever secrets he had with him. And it's believed he had even more secrets than what happened to Sharon or Cinda or Charlotte because Long is, to some degree, suspected in four other disappearances. The Rollins Four, as they've come to be known, didn't go missing all at once. It was three separate disappearances, but the one most often linked to Long is the one of two friends who went missing together from the fairgrounds. I mean, that sounds pretty familiar. It was July 4th, 1974, so 10 years before Sharon Bald Eagle went missing. 19-year-olds Carlene Brown and Christy Gross were at the Little Britches Rodeo in the town of Rollins, Wyoming. They never made it home, and the car they were driving was found abandoned. A big difference in this case, though, was that a body was found. It wasn't until October 1983, nine years after they went missing, that Christy Gross's body was found in Sinclair, Wyoming, just east of Rollins. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head. Since she was left so close to where they went missing from, there was a large search of the area in the hopes they would also find Carlene. However, there was no sign of her. Carlene is generally listed as Caucasian in the missing persons profiles. However, she was adopted. Due to closed record laws, not a lot is known about her birth parents. But the Justice for Native Women site has her listed because it is believed that one or both of her parents were indigenous and possibly from Oklahoma. They ended up in Wyoming due to a military assignment. There has been an effort to identify Carlene's birth family by the group lost and missing in Indian country so that they can get a DNA sample in the event she matches a Jane Doe. The courts have denied efforts to get the files unsealed, and Carlene's adoptive parents are deceased, so they cannot assist. It's a tricky legal situation, but we have to hope it's eventually resolved or a Jane Doe matching Carlene's description is found and the courts decide to make an exception. Carlene and Christy are the first of the Rollins Four. The next disappearance was 14-year-old Deborah Meyer on August 4th. She was visiting family in Rollins. She was actually from Montana and she left to walk to a nearby movie theater. When she didn't arrive home when expected, she was reported missing, and it turned out she never even made it to the theater. The third and final missing persons case that summer was 10-year-old Jaylene Banker, who disappeared from the fairgrounds again in Rawlins, and this was on August 23rd. Jaylene had gone to the rodeo with a friend, but they got separated while they were there, and when she didn't return home, her family called the police right away. Eight months later, Jaylene's body was found. She was found just west of town, partially dressed, and, like Christy, died from blunt force trauma to the head. So we have four girls, ages 10 to 19, who went missing over the span of seven weeks from a town of fewer than 8,000 people. People began wondering if they were connected pretty much right away. It's only in hindsight that Royal Russell Long was suspected in these crimes. Rollins is less than two hours from his home near Casper. But from what I've seen, there's not a lot to link him except proximity and maybe M.O. I might do a full episode on the Rollins 4 if people are interested in the future, which would give me more time to really dive into the case. But let's go ahead and wrap up by going back to Sharon Bald Eagle's case. Sharon's name ended up coming back into the media in 2012 when a man named John Oldson was arrested for the 1989 murder of Kathy Beard in Nebraska. And this is a convoluted story. I almost regret getting into it. But here's what happened. John Oldson got arrested, and while he was in pretrial detention, his mother went to his house to get his mail. She found there some diary pages that had been copied. The pages talked about four women and girls being kidnapped and held in a cave where they were raped and forced to give birth like breeding stock. There were two brothers involved in this with the help of one of their wives. All four of those women and girls allegedly kidnapped were dead, with two of them having died in childbirth, according to these diary pages. Those named are 9-year-old Jill Kutzall, 31-year-old Kathy Beard, 28-year-old Karen Weeks, and 12-year-old Sharon Bald Eagle. I looked up these cases. Of course, the Kathy Beard name is what is of interest to John Oldson's defense, but I was more interested in the Karen Weeks story because reports on these diary pages say that 28-year-old Karen Weeks went missing from a reservation in 1987. But the only 28-year-old Karen Weeks I can find in the newspapers in South Dakota in 1987 did not run away from a reservation. She was found dead in a bathtub in a motel. She was not a long-term missing person. So right away, I'm pretty suspicious of these supposed diary entries because one of these cases just couldn't possibly be part of this. They ended up getting DNA from the envelope and found the man who mailed these pages. He denied sending them, but he did lick the envelope closed. And the wife referred to in the entries was a woman he had previously worked for. So some think he fabricated the pages to get back at her for something. The two men, her husband and his brother, were dead at the time the diary pages were sent. Even though it was largely believed these pages were a hoax, authorities did search the property the woman and her husband had owned and found nothing. It sounds to me like whoever created these diary pages just grabbed names from the newspaper and didn't really look into it. The next time Sharon's name made the media based on a tip was this year, in 2020. So what happened was that in June 2019, a partial human skull was found near the Jim Bridger power plant, about two hours away from Casper. An additional search of the area located more skeletal remains in September. Then all of these bones were sent to the University of Wyoming for analysis. They were sent there rather than to, say, a medical examiner because they didn't appear to be recent. What they could tell was that this was a young female, likely of Native American descent, and possibly even prehistoric. However, a volunteer searcher with the sheriff's department was unaware of the age of the bones, I guess, because they gave a tip a few months later to a local online media outlet that the remains were found. The volunteer said the skeleton was 10 to 20 years old. Based on this, In January 2020, the news website and its affiliated podcast ran the story. The host of the podcast said that there was a remote chance these were Sharon Bald Eagle's remains, given that Sharon was an indigenous teenager who went missing in the area in the last few decades. The news outlet said they tried to get in touch with the sheriff's department to confirm the story, but never heard back. And the podcast host said he reached out to Sharon's father through a third party. But both the department and Taylor Bald Eagle dispute this. They say they were never contacted. But other newspapers then ran the story based on the original story, without seeking out their own independent confirmation from the sheriff or the Bald Eagle family. They didn't just run that remains may have been found. They ran the speculation that the remains may belong to Sharon. After that, Taylor started getting phone calls from people to offer their condolences because they heard Sharon's remains had been found. Even one of Sharon's brothers called to ask his dad what was going on because he also heard this from someone else. Taylor was taken aback. He was in his 80s. He had spent 35 years with a missing child. He would have expected. This information to have come from the police or the FBI, especially since he had a long running relationship with them at this point. And he was right to expect that. It would have been conveyed to him if there was a chance these remains belonged to his daughter. But there wasn't. It was a bad tip to start with and then made worse by speculating based on it. Taylor Baldigle spoke with the media afterwards and expressed how hurtful and re-traumatizing it was to have a false story go somewhat viral, at least to the point that people were calling him with condolences. And the thought that Sharon's body was found is not one Taylor welcomes because he believes she is still alive. He isn't looking at this with denial, but rather that Sharon's case could possibly be a J.C. Dugard case, an Elizabeth Smart, a Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, Gina Jesus. These stories give him hope because there was no evidence found in Long's house or his truck or his hotel rooms that he did anything to Sharon. What if he really did pass her off to another trucker and she's been trafficked or held against her will somewhere? In the event she is out there, Sharon Bald Eagle would be 48 years old. At 12 years old, she was already 5'3", so she could be 5'6", or taller as an adult. She weighed 110 pounds at the time she went missing. Sharon has black hair and brown eyes and pierced ears. There is an age progression photo that I will be putting up on social media. If you have any information, please call the Fall River County Sheriff's Office at 605 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-the-lost Where is Lisa? That's the name of my new true crime podcast. My name is Laura Palmer. I'm trying to heat up a cold case in the small island community I call home. Season one is a story about a beautiful young woman who vanished one night after getting into a red jag. Lisa Marie Young has become an urban legend here. But her story is real, and you could help solve it. Subscribe now to Where Is Lisa? Island Crime Season One, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Together, we can bring Lisa home.